welcome to the American Scouser podcast. After a week break, we are back in action. I am your host, Timuchin, in Chicago. And with me, another Chicago fella is with us this week, Mateusz. Mateusz, what's going on, man? Not much. Just happy to be back here. And also with us, and a dude I finally physically met last week, which is probably why we didn't have the podcast, because we slacked off. We were vacationing is Mr. Paul Bickler from North Carolina. Bickler, what's happening? How are you? Uh, not too shabby. I mean, that was like the odd thing. Uh, I, I was just telling Matush before we started recording that, you know, we're in the same freaking city, but we haven't been able to get together. And then I got to get together. I mean, as American Scouts, I was thinking about that afterwards. We are literally all over the U.S. We have people in one corner in Seattle, the other corner in California, we got a dude in New Orleans. We're like literally all over the place. So, which is kind of cool. Finally get to meet Pickler, kept his hat as a, keeping his like keepsake memory over there. I'm eventually going to sell it once this recording gets out. So gentlemen, I figured this week we will probably start talking about the Euros first. And almost like start from the very end and maybe come towards the beginning and talk about the tournament in general. But let's talk about the final first. And obviously, you got to talk about the penalties when you talk about this final. And obviously, the takers of the penalties. So, Bickler, let's start with you. How the hell did Southgate come up with that list? I don't know. I mean, there's some conflicting reports on whether he allowed people to choose spots or he did it right i mean someone's not telling i mean we're not getting the full story somewhere you've got john stones in an interview with the mirror pre-tournament who said they essentially were practicing for penalties so that there wasn't any confusion when they came to take kicks and then you've got you know people saying that people like jack graylish should have been up there taking kicks off the kids and then you've got jack graylish saying that he did do that and then you've got what else do you what else have you got? What else? Yeah, he, he ran out of names. <laughs> he, I think froze on us with that. Uh, <laughs> oh no. It's late. It's late in North Carolina. Yeah, they shut down the internet over there after like 11 p.m., I think. Uh, so we lost our connection with Paul over there, but he's back in action over here again. So, uh, Paul, we were speculating that they cut off your Wi-Fi over there after 11 p.m. Uh, but so, Batush, let's go back to you on that. I mean, what is your theory on that lineup of penalty takers? It's, it's odd because, like Paul said, there have been some conflicting reports. And even having the likes of Sterling not even being mentioned in the top seven or eight, allegedly, just doesn't make sense. I, I mean, you could tell that him and Kane were absolutely gassed in the second half. They just came off 120 minutes the game before. And you could tell they were tired. They needed a sub. And I just feel like the right subs didn't come in at the right time. And it just doesn't make sense that your, your big leader – one of, the, one of the guys who's the most outspoken on the team about most things gets really quiet when it comes to the PKs or just, you know, it, it, it's said that he's quiet, you know, because if, if that were me and I've, obviously this is so easy to say, just sitting here, but you look at kids like Sancho and Saka and you look at them and go, you know what? 
I don't know if this time will come again. Let me take this kick. And he should have been, even, even if Gareth Southgate was a little hesitant, he, I feel like Sterling should have stepped up in their place. That was the odd thing, I thought. I mean, going back to what like Paul was talking about, I know, yeah, I mean, this is practiced and you do have a list, but when the game time comes and when the moment comes to take the penalty kicks, I mean, I've always been told and I've been watching this game for freaking decades here that, you know, there are some people in that huddle or whatever saying, I want it. And there are some players, even if they are on the list, they don't really want anymore. They don't look like they're ready for it or they don't, you know, they just don't get that impression that they're ready to go. I mean, watching the game and I'll be honest, I was rooting for Italy. I uh, kind of want Italy to win, especially when Hendo came in, I was torn. But then when he came off, I was like, OK, I'm back to Italy again kind of thing. And I mean, watching those penalties, watching Saka, I even told my wife, we were watching it together. And I mean, the kid is young and he looks even younger than how old he is. Mm-hmm. He literally looked like a kid who just realized the homework was due that day. And he thought it was the next day. He had this look on his face like, oh, I'm not ready for this. I mean, I don't watch him enough to know if that's his regular, you know, facial expression or whatever, but he just did not look ready. I agree. I felt somebody should have come out you would think, and Grealish is now saying he wanted to take it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if Southgate stuck with that list, and maybe he was looking at his list and said, oh, shit, Rashford and Sancho are not in. I got to put those guys in so we can stick to the list. Yeah, they didn't but, even have a touch. Yeah, I mean, it was just awkward. And then not to mention, when they added minutes, you ended up playing those guys at right back. I know if they conceded a goal because of that, that would have been another fiasco. But... Uh, Paul, what did you make of the final in general, though? I mean, that goal came in early. I mean, to me, it felt like almost it was the worst thing that could happen in some ways to England because it made him even more negative and defensive. Uh, what did you make of the game in general, aside from the penalties? I mean, I thought that England played the final exactly the way they played most of the tournament. They got an early goal and then locked it up, right? I mean, they've come out defensively the entire tournament. And I think that's my major problem with Southgate in general is that, like, to me, there's too much quality and there's too much talent in the English national team for them to go out and play for counterattacking football. Like, I, I mean, I think we, they, I mean, we've spent decades sort of slating Italy for playing this way. And I think the real irony is that essentially now England plays that way and Italy has opened it up and plays beautiful football. So it's like, you know, it's not what I want to see. Um, I thought the whole day from front to back was sort of, um, like the narrative of the entire day was sort of like one stereotype after the other on what we slate England for, right? They have these fans who like are just unruly, but then they say it's all about the English media and the media bias against England, but like they didn't really do themselves any favor the entire day. Then the football's, you know, everything that we've come to expect negatively about England, uh, a collection of players that that don't seem to ever gel together. And they have during this tournament, but they're put, set up tactically in a way that I think doesn't get the best out of most of them. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was just pretty typical overall in terms of like the way they played the tournament. Um, 
And, you know, I was pulling for an Italy win just because of um, not to not uh, like, you know, we spend nine months out of the year pulling against these players from a club standpoint, and then they get put collectively as a group in front of us. And we're expected to, to cheer for them because our team Liverpool is in England. And that just is, a, it's a difficult hurdle for me to get over personally. Yeah, I thought it was kind of like odd to see the shock in a lot of the fans when they realized that, you know, a lot of the fans in the U.S., American or not, were not really rooting for England because, I mean, apart from the club you root for being from England, and I think the fact that there are not a lot of Liverpool players on this team, uh, I mean, it was like, it's kind of, there are some players that I do not mind despite playing for, you know, like Rashford, for example, playing at United, uh, Saka playing at Arsenal. And that, that was the bad thing to me is players that, I did not mind or despise like Shaw or Kane or Sterling or the list goes on and on uh, on that team. Grealish with his low socks, of course, Pickford with his T-Rex arms and goal. I mean, there were so many players that I despise. I just kind of like felt bad. Like the ones that I did not really hate as much were the ones who missed the penalties, which kind of sucked. But it's funny you mentioned that because when they went up 1-0 and I was, as I was watching that game, like going into like 15, 20th minutes, the thought I had was, man, like negative football might end up winning this tournament. A team that was constantly starting seven or eight defensive players might be the team who ends up winning it. But I thought Italy turned around. They were the more, I guess, the brave team in terms of the way they played. And I mean, they literally outclassed England, especially in the second half, the way they played. So, Matej, let me ask you this. So, we're looking at this final. Did you feel that Italy was the best team in the tournament? And just to follow up to that, did you think England was the second best team in that tournament? I think, I think Italy was the best team in the tournament. I think seeing how they played in the group stage, they, they were just playing so effortlessly. I think... Um, we had commented in the Discord at some point that Italy was just clicking on all cylinders, it seemed like. And it didn't matter who was on the pitch. Everyone who came in just knew their role and played it really well. And then knockouts came, and they pretty much went through the knockouts with relative ease. Um, as to your other point, if England was the second-best team, it's hard to say. Uh, I think, I think talent-wise, they weren't. But result-wise and, and just playing the way they wanted to play and get the results they wanted, just like Paul mentioned, I think they were the second-best team in what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it. Um, but if they had beat, beaten Italy, I don't think I would sit here and say that England was the best team in tournament. I think I still would have said Italy was the best team in tournament, especially if they lost in PKs. How about you, Paul? What do you think of that in terms of like, I mean, did you feel Italy was the best and England was the second best team in that tournament watching that final? So I thought Italy is the best team in the tournament by some distance. Like, and I mean, we look at this team, right? They missed the World Cup quite like for like the first time and probably ever. And they come back and they haven't lost an international game in nearly three years. Um, and the crazy thing about them is you take Chiellini and Benucci out of this, the back line, right? Those guys are, those guys look like they're going to be good into their fifties. But if you take those guys out of that team, this is a pretty young team. 
from a standpoint of the fact that collectively this is going to be a really good side for probably the next four to six years. But I was shocked by not only how good they were. I mean, we knew they were good through qualifiers, but I was shocked by not only how good they were, but how, what that gap looked like. I mean, I, they just, to me, they were head and shoulders better than, than any other team out there. Yeah, I mean, I think you're used to Italian teams playing more defensive and stuff like that and maybe having like one or two players that will create up front. But I thought in terms of a team playing as a team, like, you know, there were some teams that had a good defensive line. They had some teams that were like, you know, really creative moving, you know, going forward and attacking and stuff. But I thought if you looked at it line by line in terms of like their defense, midfield and attacking, I thought they were the most complete team throughout the tournaments. And I mean, heck, started with that destroying of Turkey, which I got to enjoy firsthand. And then, I mean, they just kept like rolling. And really, when you watch that final, it's kind of hard to say afterwards, unless you are English, that England deserved to win that game. Just, just the way the game was played. And in some ways, I was pretty pleased that, you know... It wasn't negative football that won. It wasn't the team that was constantly fielding. And I think that's probably the biggest criticism. I mean, criticism of Southgate, right, Matosh, in terms of having so much talent. I mean, you see all these people coming in to take freaking penalties, and it makes you wonder why aren't these guys playing? Why is a team like England playing almost scared? I mean, do you or it was it like a good strategy overall where, I mean, it's gotten to the final. So, Matush, let me ask you first, I guess, where do you stand on that? I mean, it got them to the final and it, for the most part, they got them to the semifinal of the World Cup a couple of years ago, too. I mean, so the thing is, I don't think Southgate's going anywhere, um, especially after these last two tournaments, getting them to the semi and then to the final. Um, I think he's locked in for the next couple of years. So it's just a matter of, I I guess, when you compare him to someone like Klopp, like, is he going to be stubborn in the way that he wants to play with the type of players he wants to use? Um, I think England has the talent to be the best team in the world, but I I don't know if it's Southgate who's, who is going to be the one who's going to be in charge. Because so many times we, we always talk about, you know, teams who are playing not to lose end up losing or playing not to win end up losing, you know? So when they, when they play so defensively, so negatively, so many times it backfires. Um, And unlike, I mean, what you can think of maybe Greece back in 2004, right. When that worked um, a bit of Atletico Madrid that works for them. But for the most part, it's, I don't know if it's, if he's going to be the right fit um, going forward. He just, I don't know. He he has so much as, especially, especially up front. You know, when you have guys like Sancho and Rashford and Saka who can come off the bench, it, they just they weren't used properly and they weren't brought in at the right time. And I think that was a big thing was just he, he kind of I guess he owes too much loyalty to guys like Sterling and Kane, because in the second half and extra time, Kane was just he, he was just the passenger pretty much like he didn't even seem like he made any effect on the game. They're like, well, if anything, we're going to carry this guy to the P2PKs and that's just what we're going to do. Um, and, you know, he buried his and Maguire buried his. But, yeah, just I don't know. It, I feel like they, they can do much better up front than with what what he did this tournament. It was just odd because I thought Kane was effective when he came 
back to midfield to get the ball. I mean, he has good passing for a forward, and he was almost like playing like a false nine at times, coming back, receiving the ball in midfield. I mean, the goal kind of came from that in some ways. But the problem is when you don't have any other forwards and when Kane comes back, there's nobody to pass the ball to there, Paul. I mean, how can how did they let that go for so long when they could not i mean the plan was obviously especially once they got the goal was to kind of sit back it's already a defensive lineup and they were going to play on the counter but i mean it was very apparent that those two old center backs were controlling i mean were stopping those counters before they even started and i thought it was pretty disappointing that England never had a B plan to get those counterattacks going. With all those people sitting on the bench, he kind of stuck with hoping either Sterling or Kane fall or dive or whatever or create something, and that was it. Yeah, I think this kind of goes back to a little bit about what Matish is talking about, though. Like, when you play not to win, like, this is what happens. And especially when you go out and you start eight defensive players – what are you what are you left on the bench with you know and I think that's the problem is like you know you're left with a bench full of offensive players so if you're coming in and you are trying to lock this thing up and you want to improve yourself in the midfield I mean you don't have a whole lot of options left I mean the only thing Southgate really did was justify why he took like nine fullbacks with them right I mean um and I think that was my problem with this strategy throughout the tournament, this tactic um, is like, this looks like this, this is understandable to me and is a great tactic in football and makes people like Mourinho look like a genius when he's at Porto. It makes him look like Scrooge when he goes to a big money team and plays this kind of football. Right. And I think that's the problem. Like, this this England team like is a team that's good enough to open it up with the talent they have. I mean, like this isn't like going against like France four years ago with no talent. Like, um, and I, let's give Southgate some credit here, right? I mean, I do believe that he got this team to collectively play the way that he wanted them to play, which is a major accomplishment given the problems that the English national team has had getting players to gel together. So let's give him credit there. But I think the problem was, is that he was so heavy handed and front loaded with that tactic that he didn't have enough options off the bench without significantly putting that team at risk against a better offensive team. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think that's why I kind of wanted Italy to win this thing. Uh, just because I kind of wanted that rewarded more, a team that's kind of like going after it, aggressive, pressing up top and stuff, as opposed to a team that's kind of like sitting more back. And obviously the whole diving thing and stuff like that on top of that was kind of like a a deal breaker too and made it kind of hard for them and the players we mentioned before. So I wanted to ask you this, especially you, Matush, because we had horses in the race uh, we Poland, me with Turkey. So the did that the Poland's performance affect how you kind of view the rest of the Euros? No, because I kind of knew what to expect. It's it's the same story that it's been the last eight years with the team. You know, you have 
you have this one guy up front who's just absolutely automatic at the club level, but he's playing next to guys who are some of the best in the league. And he just, he can't do it by himself. And, and Poland just, they don't have anywhere else, anyone else to help him out. So I kind of, I expected them to struggle in the group stage. I figured if maybe they could sneak a couple goals past, um, past the likes of Slovakia, that, that first game was a big blow. I think that kind of, after that game, I kind of sat back and just went, well, I don't expect much after this. So it didn't really change how I felt about the rest of the tournament. Um, I had players that I enjoyed. I was rooting probably for Belgium um, after that, uh, just because I, I like a lot of players on the team. I like the way they play, but it didn't really affect the whole Euros that much. Hmm, that's interesting because I think I feel like it's kind of soured me a lot more just because this is one of the few times I think Turkey, and this is what we get as a country in Turkey, I guess, when you go to a tournament with hopes, when you normally go expecting to get your head beat and then that's when they do well. Uh, when you go with high hopes thinking, hey, this could be a good team, this could be a good performance, you get a dud like this. And it did, especially in the beginning, like the the, the first round after the group stages or even the last games of the group stages did kind of like sour me overall from the tournament. But Paul, you're the neutral on this one. You didn't have necessarily a horse in the race, but looking back, how will you remember this Euro? I will remember this Euro as the Euro where a lot of the heavyweights took an early dive. I mean, I kind of opened the tournament up when, you know, you looked at Netherlands, France, all Germany, all making relatively early exits, uh, kind of opened this thing up, right? I think one of the odd things of this Euro, and I did uh, listen to an interview on BBC News with the the UFA president that this crap will never happen again is the fact that these teams traveling all over the freaking place because Platini had this dream of, and yeah, some things are better off just being dreamt about and not being done in reality, especially yeah. with the COVID going on. And it kind of like felt odd because you never had like an actual home team and somehow England ended up being a home team, which I thought was like really awkward. And I mean, you always go into a tournament thinking, okay, you know, like even when there was like two countries hosting it together and stuff, you're like, okay, we got two hosts. And mm -hmm. I thought it was a lot more even that way in terms of travel. I mean, you had, you know, a team like England, I think they only played one, maybe two. I'm pretty sure it's six just out one. of seven. Right. Okay. So they only played one game away from home while you had guys going all the way to Azerbaijan to play and then come back and stuff like that and all that travel and stuff like that. I mean, thank God, sounds like it's never going to happen again because I thought it kind of like really affected the tournaments in the grand scheme of things. But so, uh, Matej, how will you look at this Euro? Uh, will you even remember it down the road or with the World Cup coming up, is it going to go down the drain? I think... I don't know. It's going to be interesting because with the World Cup coming up, uh, you know, it's going to be something that we are not used to. It's going to be during the winter. And so I don't know if that's going to help or hurt the way that I look back on the Euro because um, it's only a year away now, really, a year and a couple months. Um, so we won't be too far removed. But I think what I'll remember most is uh, what Paul was saying was pretty spot on. Um, I think if if they do want to do something like that again in the future, they should stick to geographical region that doesn't spread out too much. So if you want to just do 
Central Europe, or if you want to just stick to, let's say, Spain, Portugal, England kind of area or whatever the case might be. Um, but, um, and I think it's going to be hard to not think back to this one and think of Christian Eriksen and, and how the Danes were able to kind of persevere and get through to the level, to the, to the round that they did. So I think, I think that was one of my disappointments with seeing England knock them out in the semis. Yeah, especially with a dive that just made it like even worse, I think. But another thing I wanted to ask you guys was I was personally extremely impressed with the refereeing in the final. Uh, what did you make of that, Paul? I mean, I thought I'm like, can't we just do this every game? I felt like he kind of let them like battle, uh, but kind of like kept control of the game. I mean, there were two decisions and it's most of the English obviously complaining about it now going back to it. Uh, one of them was the Jorginho's, you know, uh, step on, I think uh, it was Grealish's die. Basically he ended up cleating that. And then the Chiellini's uh, yank of Saka when he was going to be probably gone on the right hand side there, but it was definitely, I mean, to me, they were both correct decisions. I thought when he stepped on Grealish, it slipped off of the ball, so it wasn't a direct step. And the other one wasn't a clear cut. I know it looked ugly, the yank, but it was a professional foul that was just like a yellow card. I thought they were perfect decisions. I thought it was probably the best ref game I've seen in a while, let alone in a final. Uh, what did you make of it, Paul? Yeah, I agree. I thought that both of those calls specifically were right and correct. Um, I liked how very early on in that match, there was a number of both, there are a number of collisions on both, you know, the Italian and the English side where players went down pretty theatrically and he just let the play go, even though I thought that in those instances there, they were probably fouls, but I thought it set a really good early precedent that like the theatrical stuff isn't going to, isn't going to roll. Um, so I mean, because both those teams have a tendency to do that. So I liked how he kind of set that really early markdown where, like, you know, he let some fouls goal just based on the reaction from players. Um, but, yeah, I agree with you. I thought it was a really, really well done final, as it should have been, right? He let the he let the game flow, and it, it became about the football. How about you, Matush? What did you, especially, like, those two calls, where do you stand on those? Because I've seen, like – some discussion going over it. Like I say, it's more, you know, sour English fans complaining about the calls. I mean, some of them make a semi-decent case, I guess, but I thought they were the right calls. What did you think? I think they were the right calls as well. I feel like, however, if we were in the Premier League, I feel like they both would have been Reds for some reason. That's um, So I, even though I think they are correct, I think they would have been called differently by VAR in England. Um, and echoing off of Paul's point, kind of as, you know, watching basketball here, they say, let them, let them play the game. Don't ruin the, the fluidity of the game. Don't ruin the momentum of the game. So by being able to just let them play and not having these constant stops, he was able to, I, I, it makes for a better match and a better final because you just don't, you have that ebb and flow that sometimes gets, I don't know, it gets um, interrupted, you know, when you have, all the theatrics that go on. So I think overall it was it, like you said, the tournament was really well refed. And I think VAR should kind of of in England should take a look at the euros and kind of try and learn from it and see, see what they can do there. 
that was one thing. So I want to go back to the VAR, but you mentioned the whole theatrics and like the refereeing. I, I haven't talked about that. I don't know if you guys caught the, the Copa America final, which was the day before between Argentina and, Bra- Argentina and Brazil. And it felt like it was the complete opposite where people were rolling all over the place. Game was stopping constantly. Everything was a foul. Everything was kind of embellished by players and stuff like that. Did you catch that game at all, Paul? I had it on in the background and I paid attention to it a little bit, but it's very, it's difficult for me. It's difficult for me to watch South American football just because it's so much of that. Um, in Brazil, like, you know, Brazil used to be such a fun team to watch and they're so, it's a combination of the fact that they don't play that, that typical flowing beautiful football Brazil's known for and a combination of just some of the worst personalities in all sports on that team. Um, and then, you know, coupled with the fact that um, none of our boys are playing, they were all on the bench. I was actively pulling for the first time in my life for a messy win. Um, but yeah, no, I watched it. It was tough to watch, man. It was like, that's just like, that's the reason that outsiders hate soccer, you know, as we call it in America like especially Americans, they see that and it's an immediate turnoff for a lot of people, which ironically, this is starting to bleed into basketball more now. Um, so we're dealing with it for the first time on a grander scale at the American sports level. But it is the reason that people talk shit about soccer, because it's ridiculous when you watch it, when it when it's that when there's that much of it um, condensed and kind of forced into a one sort of small segment that you're watching it's so difficult to watch yeah i mean i'm glad you brought up that point because it does make it embarrassing to watch it with somebody else when you're like man this is a great sport and then try to sell that concept uh watching you know brazilians and argentinians like rolling around all over the floor like they got shot at any freaking contact but yeah you're right about basketball too having no fans has kind of shown me how much of a crybaby NBA players are too, where like a slight tap to the wrist sounds like somebody broke that wrist and stuff like that. But, and I agree again with the whole Brazilian thing. I mean, growing up, that team was my favorite team to watch just because of the skill they had on the ball and how easy they made things look and stuff like that. But I mean, even with the Liverpool players and they were not, I know Bobby came in the second half and stuff. I hate to say it, man, if Neymar is on that freaking 11, if the other the other 10 players could be Liverpool players, and I would still freaking find it hard to root for that team. That guy is everything wrong with this sport at the moment. His acting, his embellishing, his over-the-top like moves just to show off and just to show the opponent off almost. I mean... And that's why he gets kicked all the time because he tries to pull stuff like that. And, hey, I'm going to let you do it one second time. I'm going to probably break something. But did you catch the game at all, Matush? Yeah, I like Paul, I had it in the background. So I, I kind of – I paid more attention to it the last 20 minutes, I'd say, just when it was getting nearer to the end. Um, and I knew that there was no extra time. It will go straight to PK. So it was going to either end there or, you know, be done relatively soon. And it's – it's just so difficult and it's, it's, it's so weird to see the two different styles across continents and how unlikable it is now. And it's frustrating because like 
you guys were saying it, you want people in this country to appreciate the sport for what it is. You want them to enjoy it. You want to be able to say, Oh yeah, I like soccer without someone around you immediately going or making fun of you for it. Like you want to be able to enjoy it, but it's, it's so difficult when that's what's on display on the TV. It's, it's not good for the game. It's not good for the sport. It's not good for, for anyone that mattered. And it's, it's just embarrassing as a whole. And while we're talking about like the Liverpool players, kind of wanted to ask you guys that as well, because I saw a lot of if the Liverpool players were in, the result will be different. And this was both for Brazil and for England. And definitely do not agree for England, because as much as I love Henderson, that he's my favorite player by far on that team, despite all the other stars we have, he's my I mean, that dude is awesome with everything on the field and off the field. But I don't think I would want him taking the penalties. And he doesn't have a great record for taking penalties. So I don't think he would have made a difference if he was in the game, if he wasn't taken out. Brazil might be a different case. I am, I never understand how Fred starts over Fabinho and stuff. But what do you think, Paul? Would that even make a difference? Or is that some kind of like a ridiculous bias that we get exposed to in all these Liverpool groups? I mean, I think it's both, right? I think you could make the argument for Brazil if you went player to player. Like, I mean, I don't understand Ederson over Allison. I definitely don't understand Fred over Fabinho. And I think Firmino is so good when he's in. So, like, I, you could make that argument. But I think it is overblown. It kind of smacks to me a little bit of, like, the parent that's in the stands that's yelling for their kid to get in the game, you know? Like, <laughs> my kid were in there. We would have been up 3-0 no by now. You know, like – so it's a little too close to, the, to that, like, that feeling for me. But, but I think there's a little bit of truth to both. That's, that's funny you said that because, yeah, I mean, having kids in soccer, I do always see that. that they're like, oh, if my daughter wasn't there kind of deal. But <laughs> that's a good analogy. What do you make of it, I mean, Would that have made a difference for either team? I don't think so. I mean, Hendo missed the last penalty he took for England anyway, right? So it's just, it's one of those things where we want to see them and we want them to have those results because we root for them nine months out of the year, like Paul mentioned earlier. But had they been in and they lost, what would be the story then? Like, what, what would be the excuse then? You know, it was bad coaching or, or what? So I just... To me, it, it's it's kind of a, a lazy thing to say, and a lot of the stuff that people like to throw in those groups and like to mention are just it's just kind of just attention seeking, just to just because they they can. Yeah, I mean, uh, some of the groups have been more intolerable than normal, and that's saying a lot. With so, I'm almost glad the Euros are over, so we don't have to just fight over England anymore, and. We can just fight over if we're going to get Coutinho back. Or it almost made me miss Coutinho post at this point. So yeah, you, that tells you how bad it was. One thing I want to ask that kind of, and then we'll kind of like go back to our boys in Liverpool, but VAR, I thought that was probably the thing I was most impressed with in this tournament. Paul, why the hell can we not do this in the Premier League? And it works so so much more smoother. And I know we did not get to see as many replays as a fan, but it just felt like it worked so much smoother. It felt like everything was checked, even if it was not in some cases, I guess. But I mean, it's like how it should be in most cases. 
Yeah, I mean, well, this is a really simple answer. You don't have English Premier League refs running VAR. Like, I mean, that's that's what it comes down to for me is, like, you, can, you can't have the cops police the cops. You know what I mean? It's like if we have an inadequacy and we have a problem with the quality of refereeing in the English Premier League and then we put, you, like, the same guys in charge of VAR, I just it, – it's never going to work for me. I mean, I have fundamental disagreements on a couple of the rulings and what we're looking at and how we treat it anyway, uh, especially offsides. But if you put those sort of fine, like those minute points of contention in the background and just look at how we run it, I think to me there's got to be some sort of neutral third party, um, or we have to have we have to look at how they ran it in this tournament and, and sort of mimic that. How about you, Matush? Why are we dealing with this VAR the way it is in Premier League? And what did you think of it in the tournament? I guess I personally liked it a lot, but I don't know if you guys did as well. Yeah, um, I kind of don't really have much to add after Paul and what I mentioned earlier. It just seemed like it it didn't ruin the momentum of the game as much as it did as it does in the English League. And it just it I don't know, it, it it's frustrating to see how well it can be ran. I think once you see it for a month and a half and see it, how, how it can be done properly, it's going to become even more frustrating if things don't change in the next year or so. So that's, I mean, that's one thing that I'm not excited for, for this year is just seeing being spoiled with something that worked and going back to a system that obviously needs some help. I mean, I'm still going to be the old fart in the room and I still feel like, you know, it does take away from the emotion of the game. And I remember watching, I think it was France, Switzerland. I mean, one of the top moments in the game, especially when it goes to penalty kicks in a tournament like this is when the last save is, you know, when the goalie does the last save, his run towards his teammates, the teammates running toward him and stuff. I mean, there was a moment the dude saved the penalty. He couldn't even celebrate because he wasn't sure if his foot was on the line. So he's looking around like, should I even be celebrating? And I was like, ugh. VAR, but at least I can kind of deal with that if the rest of it is functioning the way it did and it does fix a lot of like wrong calls or it does make things correct and stuff like that. As long as it is done just as smoothly as it was without stopping the game, going back like what standing around for three minutes watching the same to play 30 times and stuff like that. So let's just hope for the best. Let's be the optimists and say. Maybe it will change for the better this year in the Premier League. Well, so- that's one thing, like you mentioned with the PKs, is I just still find it insane that the, the penalty taker can do pretty much whatever he wants coming up to the ball, can do whatever kind of stutter step, can do whatever sort of hop, can stop and then kick it. But the goalie is not allowed to come off the line at all. I feel like that shouldn't even be a question. If the goalie wants to come off the line, and go up a foot or two and make the wrong decision on the wrong, on the wrong side. And that's the decision. So be it like, just let them both use what they can in that situation. I noticed like they go, all the goalies have totally changed their technique too. So in the past, when the penalty came in, it was a slight hop forward and then the dive, like kind of closed on the angle and dive dive. Now they're that hop, they're doing a hop where, one foot goes behind the line, one foot goes a bit more in front of the line, and they're doing the dive. So they've kind of like 
done it down to a science. I mean, how many penalties did we get saved in this final alone? And when you looked at the replay in every single one, the goalie had one foot literally behind the freaking line. But what do you make of it? You're the forward, Bickler. Uh, what do you make of it? Do you want the goalies coming out? Have fun with it. Start the halfway line. Let's do it NHL style. No, I mean, I think the advantage has always been to the attacker, right? I mean, I think uh, I I don't get the, like, necessarily having to be on the line. Like, I think, you know, the, with the velocity and the distance that you're talking about, like, I think the goalkeeper should be able to, to opt for it if they want to. So, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I think the bigger point that you made that is more, you know, I have a bigger problem with is, like, we just got to bring the joy back. You know what I mean? Like, it's not fun to be in a pub anymore, even post-pandemic, when, like, you don't know if that, like, you know, you can't – the pub used to explode when a goal went in, and now it's like everybody's just kind of, like, murmuring and rubbing elbows until, like – like, we got – what like, do we get, a like, a track starter pistol or a cannon or something that we can let off when the goal is, like, actually confirmed? Because, like, that would be cool. Like, you get, like, this loud explosion and everybody freaks out and, like, celebrate – like. It's got to be something that we can do to bring the joy back because, man, it sucks. Like, it sucks scoring and just sitting there and not knowing, right? Oh, welcome to the old man club, man. I must have rubbed off when you're doing that vacation getaway. Uh, yeah, uh, this is what I've been complaining about all this time, but then you can't get – I mean – is there a happy medium, Matush, or what is the happy medium? I just don't see a way around it. I mean, if we're going to get the call right, we're always going to have that. So either you're going to kind of go overboard and get ready for a post-disappointment, or you're going to do what I do and stare at the TV like a zombie till the kickoff. Then you start kind of like half-ass celebrating because now it's been like freaking like 45 seconds. I guess you just you celebrate when it happens and just enjoy that moment. If it gets taken back, so be it, you know, then you get to celebrate again, maybe later in, in the match, but cause it's hard to, it's hard to switch off those emotions. Sometimes you, you get excited. You, you love to see those moments. Those are the moments that you're, that you're there for that you want to see, especially when you're with people, there's almost like no better feeling than, than celebrating with everyone around you. So I, at this point, I, I still will cheer as if, you know, there's no check that's going to happen. And then if, if it gets checked and it comes back, then hopefully it wasn't a long check and hopefully it made sense. So, yeah. See. Well, I'll tell you what, it's going to be all over if EA Sports delivers on their promise. And, you know, if it's in the game, it's in the game and they add it. So I'm going to be pissed. Oh, man. No, Matush speaks like a young guy, see? Uh, that's the difference right there, Bickler. But, yeah, I I feel like I've already passed that cynical point where I just cannot fully celebrate like I used to. I mean, there are some things where it's, like, almost obvious. But even then, it was like, oh, in the background, there was a foul, like, as the ball was coming in or something like that. So it's just, like... Yeah, it's a big frustration for the dog and myself every time somebody scores. So let's come back to the league with the hopes of VAR being fixed and take a peek at the rumors real quick. Uh, just for uh, shits and giggles, uh, Paul, out of the rumors you heard over the last couple of days, especially started to pick up, I would say, in the last couple of days, any of them kind of like catches your fancy and you're like, man, I will like that move. 
I mean, so the thing is, it's been actually very, like, eerily quiet on that front. I mean, we've got some transfer rumors, but other than, the like, the kid from Denmark, like, the they've been kind of the old transfer rumors just restoked. And, and I think the more I look at it, the more I like the possibility of Saul from Atletico. Like, I wasn't sold on that initially, but the more that I kind of read up and watch stuff, because I'm not an active legal watcher. Like the more I kind of look up into him and sort of what he's known for and what he does well, he does seem like a really good fit on that left side of the midfield. Um, if I had to sort of rate the main ones, I'd say like Tillemans is my dream signing. Like I just am a, a believer in that kid. I think he's just an absolute stud um, and he's still super young. Um, I'd go Tillemans, Saul, Renato, which I'm, I'm kind of mixed on in anybody, literally anybody in the entire world, and then Adama Traore. <laughs> That's why um, not Adama Traore? He is a beast, a physical specimen, Paul. Why don't yeah, you want? I, mean, him? I think that's it. I think if he didn't look like that, nobody would give a shit. But like, it's like he's got this whole like WWE thing going on with the baby oil, and he looks like a rugby player plays like a rugby player. Like my, my thing with him is, is that like, if he was as good as everybody says he's going to be, everybody's saying, I've been saying this about this player for literally eight years, like since he was like 15 years old. And it just never, like the reason that he got out, out of the Barcelona youth system is because he was considered too one dimensional as a player. And I haven't seen anything about him that like suggests otherwise, like he is a pace monster. And he's huge. And you put those two things together and it becomes like fascinating from a physical standpoint, but from a footballing standpoint, super, super one dimensional. He can't cross with any accuracy. He can't hit. He can rip the net if he can get it on frame, but like he's just wildly inconsistent there. His distribution is average at best. He's really just pace and physicality. It reminds me of, you know, like when you watch basketball, for example, you know, everybody is tall, but sometimes you have guys that are like freakishly tall or you have a guy like Muggsy Bugs or something like that, which is like freakishly short. So it's just interesting. doesn't matter if they're like really good. It just makes it interesting to watch to see what to do, what this little guy is going to do or man, this guy is so tall. It's unbelievable and stuff like that. But in terms of result, I agree the fact that he's one dimensional and the fact is that dimension really doesn't fit us because if he's going to keep trying to go down that wing and cross the ball and there's never going to be in the, everybody in the middle because that's not really how we play. You're going to have all these guys outside the box waiting for the ball and he's going to keep crossing it in. Uh, what do you make of that, Matush? Do you want a crack at him? We're talking like 30, 35 million, I think, right now? No, I don't think that's worth it. I, I feel like I've been echoing myself by echoing Paul's statements this whole podcast but hey he's going first and he's speaking the right thing so I mean everything that Paul said there's nothing else that really needs to get touched on with Traore he's kind of what a novelty act I guess is how I would put it you know like you were mentioning he's this he's this kind of specimen that we're not used to seeing and we want to some people maybe want to have him on the team because he's just so different and so interesting but there is not much to his game um, as far as everything else, else uh, Tielemans, my number one, I've been a, big on him for a long time. 
Um, those new house rumors were, were fun as well while they lasted. looks like he's probably going to go to Bayern though. Um, I, I, I don't know much about Saul. I, it, it is what it is. I just, what I worry is the front three is, is getting older. Right. And I feel like there's a big gap between the likes of Salah and Elliot. And, you know, people want to say it's going to be okay that we just need a couple more years and, that'll be the replacement but but what if it's not kind of thing you know like when when do you start looking to get younger up front too like Jota helps obviously he's younger and he can play on that left side or, or in the center if need be but I mean Mane, Mo and, and Bobby are all getting up to 30 now you know how much how much more years how many more years do they have left at a optimal level that they're playing at um, Mane's year last year I mean is this the beginning of, of a big decline for him so it just uh, I feel like I know it's still early in the transfer season and transfer market but I want to see some sort of movement up front for I guess the future in a way kind of more investment there are you, are you kidding like Paul Bickler's favorite player Divac Origi is there right Paul he's I mean still there. all over the place he's still there <laughs> Jesus Christ you guys are so disrespectful. Yeah, I yeah, mean, no, no, interestingly enough, what Matush was saying, I think is pretty spot on. And I think it's interesting that Fabrizio Romano, who is now, you know, the, the sole transfer king at this point right now um, for reliability, he said that there is a wide attacking player being signed by Liverpool in this window. So, which is very interesting because we've had very limited rumors on wide attacking players. So, um, could we? Maybe see he's talking a, about Adama Torre. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, like, that's not. I mean, I feel like that's just super wild. It, that's like that's like being like, well, yeah, Komen from Bayern. It's like no, but like realistically, we haven't seen a whole lot of stuff um, coming out. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. We could have like a Fabinho type situation where it's just somebody that's like solid that we just were not even like was not even on our radar as, as supporters. Do you guys anticipate something like that? Like, Mateusz, like, do you anticipate something like that in terms of a Fabinho signing? I almost feel like it would be more of a, you know, like a young kid in the Belgium League or something like that uh, being signed for what you're talking about in terms of, like, for future concerns, somebody young to kind of, like, develop as opposed to somebody like Fabinho who is, you know, like a shoe-in for the starting eleven. I mean, more than like what you hope, I guess I'm asking what you feel will happen. I don't see a name come up that is official that we haven't heard already. Um, I don't think it's going to be one of those Fabinho summers. Um, maybe in in the January window, I feel like there could be something that kind of slides through potentially, but I don't see that happening. I feel like it's going to be someone that's already been linked Um I, I mean, I I love watching and following Fabrizio Romano, and you know he he did say what Paul said about the attacking wide player, but I it's just I don't know I, it's especially with what happened last year and, and the money concerns and all of that, it just doesn't seem to be adding up that there's going to be some sort of marquee huge signing that we haven't heard of, um, unless it's for cheap and you know and we're able to 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 kind of steal from another team again, so to speak. 
Yeah, I guess I meant more in the way that it was done, like super under the radar with like yeah. very little notice. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot depends on what we're able to work in terms of selling people as well. I mean, we were discussing earlier today, for example, on uh, on our like American Scouts or Discord channel about like the homegrown numbers and what we can afford and well, how many we need to move to be able to sign people and stuff like that. So what happens to players like, you know, Shakiri, Divac and stuff like that. And like, you know, Gruyich, if he's sold, uh, things like that is going to probably make kind of like determine what we do in terms of like what we bring in just based on just pure numbers alone, aside from finances on top of that. But a couple of quick things I want to ask before we kind of like call it the week here on this week's podcast. One, Elliot, uh, I know we obviously house the home run numbers, so I do anticipate him staying personally. Uh, if you had to take a guess right now before preseason and stuff, because I really don't think performances in the preseason games definitely determine that i think it's more about the practice you know practice pitch what happens there and what he shows club more than anything else in terms of what happens on the preseason games in terms of performance but what's your gut feeling matush is elliot's gonna play a role or is he kind of just gonna stick around and play in the league cup and stuff like that i feel like i want him to play a role but I don't think he will. Um, I, not that I think that he needs to get another loan spell. Uh, I think it would be nice to have him around to train with the first team and be around. Uh, but I think he's going to need at least another year um, of development, whether it be with Liverpool. And I just I hope to see it with Liverpool um, rather than anywhere else. But even in, if he does stay, I don't think he's going to find many minutes unless it's in rotation, like you said, in a League Cup or some sort of meaningless group stage game in, in the Champions League. How about you, Paul? Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I mean, I think I could see him doing sort of the Curtis Jones thing where he, like, um, gets minutes sparingly and then takes advantage of some injuries and gets more time. I mean, I could see a situation like that. I definitely think he belongs with the first team. Um but, it, you know, it's tough to say, too, because, like, if we can't get rid of Shaq, like, that puts him essentially competing for time with Shaq, Ox, and Origi, uh, Origi if all those players are there. So, like, it does have to do with who we can weed out, who we can get out for decent money. Um, but, yeah, I think he's going to be still on the fringe for another year here. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I just hope that he plays that role. I just don't know if he's ready yet, but it's definitely somebody exciting. I mean, I just hope, you know, we always talk, especially with you, Paul, about, you know, club substitutions and stuff like that. I just hope, you know, we take the opportunities where he can get playing time to be thrown in there in games where we have a lead and stuff like that so that he gets that experience in the Premier League and we really see what we have because i think i mean by now we pretty much know that you know we're not gonna like wilson is not going to be that player and stuff i know you know he was definitely older than elliot at the time but we were saying kind of like the same things about i would say wilson maybe like two three seasons ago in the summer saying oh if he gets a chance he might be the one he might be able to get a spot and stuff like that but uh lastly what did you guys make of 
Roma's jersey or our jersey, same thing, just different colors. What do you guys make of the second jersey or the whole template thing at all? Or do you guys even care? Mateusz, let's start with you. You're the fashion guy of American Scouser with your tailor and everything. So yeah. go ahead. I love the second kit. Um, it's I, I. It's kind of like we had some discussions in the Discord. Each, each brand, each company is going to have their own sort of template, and I guess it's down to the club specifically to to want to tell them how much they want to deviate from that. I think. Um, because the clubs obviously get a say in what they want their kits to look like. And it's just a matter of how much liberty will they give to the people who are creating it. Um, so I'm a big fan of the second kit. Um, I kind of hope the third kit is not that checkered look that's on the sleeves and the collar. Uh, there was another one rumored where it had the red lines, very thin lines going down vertically. Um, I thought that one was would have been really nice. Um, but again, it's one of those things where like last year wasn't big on the kits in the beginning. And then I saw them being worn and it changed my opinion. And then I saw a couple come in and I saw them in person and it just, it's one of those things too, where maybe you just kind of need to have it to, to just let it grow on you and give it some time. I feel like half of it is just like taste anyway. I personally like the second jersey too. And it is eerily like the Roma jersey and a couple of other ones. But I mean, this is going to happen. I think anytime you go with a big company, you would think a company like Nike or Adidas would have a bigger staff to be able to cater to the top clubs in terms of being creating like, you know, more unique stuff. But I mean, we can see that they do not because you see that like across the board in like top clubs and part of it is like, I mean, I'm not a big fan of yellow jerseys myself and that checker one makes me just crave fries from checkers, which are really good, by the way, if you never had them, but that's about it. I do not think I'll be buying that if that turns out like that. How about you, Paul? I know you had shorts after North Carolina, but what do you make of the jerseys? Um, I, I like the second one. I'm a big fan of collars on the shirts. I, I know that's like, that's a point of contention for a lot of people. Like, but, um, I, it, I that's probably shocking, uh, just based on my general appearance, usually that, I, that, that's a thing for me, but like, I, I do like the collars on the shirts. I am less, uh, tolerant of and accepting of the templates than most people, because when I look at the money that's involved in these deals with teams in the amount of money that is brought in and the staffing of these, like the way that these companies are, are, are basically built out Nike, Adidas, Puma probably to a lesser extent, but there is no excuse in my opinion as to why the top clubs and the top leagues are not getting um, custom kits. There's none in my opinion. Um, and even if it was just a, a, they did it on a, on a league by league basis based on revenue, um, that would be a start for me. But like to me, as a consumer um, who spends a lot of money on this type of stuff, um, like there's just no excuse for me as to why like it can't be done. You can't tell me it can't be done. It's just one of those things that we accept. I think so. I mean, I agree. I don't see why it can't be done. Uh, I mean, just hire one extra graphic designer for, for God's sakes. But 
Yeah, it's just not being done. And it's not just us. I mean, it's for every clubs. And I know, you know, I know for Fenerbahce, for example, I know they switched to, for example, Puma. And I mean, I don't know if you guys saw the Puma's uh, leaked third kits. Puma is the biggest culprit of templates, I think, with that third kit. Like every Puma team has the same third kit with just... And it looks like a bad going. Yeah, it it does. It's just, it's... Yeah, and I mean, I haven't like Fenerbahce has not announced the third one, but having seen all the other ones, I'll be shocked that if it's any different. But I know, you know, New Balance. I think the smaller, somehow, the smaller the company is, the more they're able to kind of like allocate time and stuff. I like either to be able to stick around for the long term, or they have the resources to apply to it because you are there, the big account kind of thing. But when you go to, you know, Nike and Adidas, it's kind of like the same across the board for all the class, which I agree, it is disappointing, but I really do not think it affects sales for the most part because, you know, I'm still going to buy the second kit. Well, it doesn't because if it did, then they would do it. You know what I mean? And that's true. That's true. But I think, I mean, do you think it does affect sales? I, I don't think it affects sales. No, I think people will buy it anyway. And that's why I think there's not like they don't do it because there's not a big enough, like there's not a big enough hit in it for them. Right. Like if they, if the financially they saw the repercussions of doing templates, like it wouldn't be done. It's obviously they're just evaluating their cost and benefit. Right. And it's like, you know, it's not, they're going to make the money and they don't have to put forth the extra work to make it happen. So I mean, I get it. It's business. It's business, and it makes sense for them to do what they're doing. I just think it's it's not going to change until the consumer level no longer puts up with it. And I think you're right. I think people will just continue to put up with it. I mean, there's there's people that literally buy the kit and then black out the Nike logo. I mean, like, at what point does it not make sense anymore? You know, <laughs> like we saw that in in one of the groups where someone bought several kits just to black out the Nike logo. And it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I don't think Nike gives a damn once that. They hit them where it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> that's not the swoosh. Don't cover the swoosh. <laughs> That'll be $120, please. <laughs> and probably $5 for tape. Exactly. And the cost of tape to boot. So at least you're going to save yourself the five bucks. But yeah, let's hope our uh, third kit is better than what's projected. But I think that's what it's going to end up being. But I mean, I think what we basically got with Nike was the distribution. I mean, you see people, you know, posting pictures from like Dicks and stuff like that, where they have Liverpool stuff before. I mean, you could never see anything Liverpool anywhere retail. Uh, even in New Balance stores, for God's sakes. I remember like being in New York and went to three different freaking New Balance stores and neither one of them carried jerseys. And that's probably like the biggest disappointment there. So hopefully at least we'll get our money's work and then we can announce Mbappe uh, as planned. Maybe that's the winger that we're getting. Uh, yeah. Let's hope let, for yeah. that. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining me. And next week, hopefully, maybe we will have some actually concrete news and signings happening. Not that the Euros are over and the Copa America and everything is over. The boys are back practicing. We'll probably talk a little bit about that. The preseason schedule is out, so we'll be looking forward to watching some games. Watching some games live on American Scots or two with video and everything with fans, which should be exciting. Uh, Matush right here, who's with us on this week's podcast, is uh, has been working on our new map for the website which looks amazing by the way so we'll be 
uh, releasing that shortly to get some more feedback just in case we're missing some locations and stuff. So ready for the season, man. That was like one thing I, I did love having soccer to watch every freaking day, regardless of what tournament. But part of me is happy that all this shit is over so we can get back to Liverpool and Premier League. Gentlemen, thank you once again. And thank you all those for listening. See you guys next week.